We have been walking through um, Proverbs and different themes of Proverbs and looking at the contrast uh, found in Proverbs. And uh, this morning we're going to take a break from that and look at Proverbs that we find, or not Proverbs, but contrasts that we find in this uh, triumphal entry into Jerusalem and look at that today. Our text today comes from uh, Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. Um, it's interesting that you will find this, this passage in, in all the Gospels, uh, but we'll look at Mark uh, chapter 1, or chapter 11, verses 1 through 11 uh, this morning. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord needs it and will send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street. Tied at a doorway, as they untied it, some people standing there asked, What are you doing untying that colt? (coughs) They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the field. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Jesus was approaching Jerusalem from the east. Just five days ahead of his arrest and crucifixion. Bethany and Bethage were just east of Jerusalem. Uh, You see that up here on the map, just over there. Um, When I was in Israel, I walked that path through the Mount of Olives and all of that. Bethage is up on the top of a hill. And then uh, between uh, the Mount of Olives and down to the valley is the big cemetery, um, the the big Jewish cemetery. This whole section here is that big cemetery uh, with the Garden of Gethsemane down there, uh, but the Mount of Olives up there. And Jesus was coming in on this path up, up there. And the, the Mount of Olives is just east of the, the big temple that would have been there in Jesus' day. Now, Bethany and Bethage were both parts, and the Mount of Olives were both considered part of Jerusalem, even though they were walled off completely separate from Jerusalem um, and, um, and separate. But it was at Bethage where the Sanhedrin met, uh, instead of in Jerusalem proper, uh, on the other side of the valley, uh, the Sanhedrin would meet up there at Bethage. And so that was kind of the, the Supreme Court of, of 
the Jews. And so all the legal issues, the sovereignty issues, the immigration issues, the border issues, all those kind of issues were settled up at Bethage um, for Jerusalem. Now, it's interesting that Bethage means unripened fig. And it was at that city uh, where Jesus cursed the fig tree. Um, and it withered overnight, just within a couple of hours, in this city named Unripened Fig. And Jesus was basically showing at, at Bethage there that the Sanhedrin that had so much power would lose its authority over Israel. Now, the fig was the national symbol of Israel. And so, you know, here you have a city named the unripened fig, and Jesus comes in and, and looks at this tree, and it doesn't have a fig that is ready for him to eat, and he curses the tree, and, and it dies. And, and he basically is communicating as he does that, that, that Israel is not going to produce fruit in keeping with the kingdom. It hasn't been. And Jesus is going to create a kingdom that will produce fruit for him. Now, as Jesus comes in and he's coming for the Passover, along with him come all these people uh, from across Israel. And they have been mostly in the north, uh, where Jesus did most of his ministry up in Galilee, and they're coming in along with him and coming in from the east side of, of Jerusalem. And as they do that, they come to celebrate the Passover. And Jesus is coming into Jerusalem just like everyone else. He's just walking in a humble manner like everyone else in the crowds. And yet these cheering crowds hail his entrance. And they're excited about him. And, and these people, that they have known him and they've seen him in their villages in Capernaum and, and all these different towns. Uh, they are excited that he is there. And when he gets to Bethage, or just about to Bethage, he says to a couple of his disciples, go ahead and go to Bethage and get a, a, a donkey for me to ride on. Now, as far as we know, Jesus had never, ever ridden a donkey before. As far as we know, he'd never been on any animal before. Uh, we, we have him using boats to cross seas and, and all kinds of things. He's in a boat. He walks, uh, he walks the whole, you know, whole land of Israel. You see him walking from here to there and somewhere else. He walks outside of Israel into other territories. We have that recorded in all the scriptures. And Jesus gets within two miles from Bethage uh, to the temple, and Jesus is requesting a donkey. Well, I don't think it's because he got tired of walking. Because that's all he had ever done, is walk everywhere in Israel. All of a sudden, he says he wants a donkey uh, to ride on. And, and, of course, we know that he wanted that donkey partly to fulfill Scripture. Zechariah had made a number of prophecies, especially about this week, uh, about the, the 
Messiah coming. Uh, Zechariah was the, the prophet that, that uh, said that he would betrayed, be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. Um, he was also the prophet in the Old Testament that prophesied that Jesus would be pierced in his side. Um, and so in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, we read this prophecy. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now you just stop and think about this. Uh, he's riding a donkey. Not a great horse, not a stallion, not anything like that. He's just riding a donkey, but he's riding a colt, the foal of a donkey. One that hasn't been ridden before. And he chooses to get this donkey from Bethage, the seat of sovereign power, where they, you know, where they would, you know, establish um, people like a king to be in, in authority. And, and he goes and gets this donkey from Bethage and he shows the world there that he is coming into Jerusalem as a king. The village offers up this donkey. It's the same village that will condemn him to death. It was a Sanhedrin that, that chose to put Jesus to death and to condemn him to death. And from that same village, Jesus gets the donkey. In Matthew 27, verse 41, it tells us that all the chief priests, the scribes, the elders of the Judahites or the Sanhedrin, they witnessed the crucifixion on Friday. They were all there. Not all the disciples. Not all the crowds, not anyone else, but all the chief priests, all the Sanhedrin, the leaders of Bethage, all of those people were there witnessing the crucifixion. They were so happy it was finally over and they were done with Jesus. But this event, this triumphal entry where people lay down and wave branches and lay down their cloaks for Jesus to ride into Jerusalem, it also fulfills a prophecy given way back in, in Genesis. Genesis chapter 49, you remember Jacob, he blesses every one of his 12 sons. And he blessed Judah, from which Jesus was from the line of Judah, and he blessed Judah and he said this, the scepter will not depart from Judah. In other words, from, from Judah there will always be a king. Nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. Until he to whom it belongs shall come. And the obedience of the nation shall be his. There's coming a day when all the nations of the world are going to bow to the Lord Jesus Christ. There won't, won't be a Syria <laughs> and a man named Assad. There won't be a Putin. There won't be all these other rulers. They will all bow the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. And then verse 11, he will tether his donkey to a vine, his colt to the choicest branch. He will wash his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes. 
speaking there of the crucifixion and, and the blood of Jesus going out on his clothes and all of that. So this triumphal entry is prophesied right there all the way back in Genesis chapter 49, uh, 10 and 11. So Jacob prophesies there's going to come a king from Judah. He, he prophesies that all people are going to obey him. He prophesies a colt is tied to a, a vine. Again, another symbol of Israel, uh, the, the vine of the fruit. Um, and then that his garments are going to be washed in blood. So you have this one, one group, Jesus and all these people from all these villages coming into Israel, coming into Jerusalem from the east. From the west, over by the Mediterranean Sea, where the Romans have all of their, uh, their positions and palaces and all of that right by the sea, they are also coming. And Rome is approaching with their big army to Jerusalem from the west. The Roman army is coming to maintain order, especially during the Passover. And there's a reason why Rome was more concerned at the Passover than any other time of the year with Jerusalem. The Passover was the one time when Egypt celebrated the fact that God delivered them out of the Pharaoh's hand in Egypt. And so the Romans believed that the, the, the Passover was a prime time for the Israelites and for all the Jews to rebel against Rome. And so they would come in and they thought they would just, you know, they were going to do the same thing to them that had been done to Pharaoh and they would lose power and all of that. And so Rome was going to come in and they would come in every year at Passover with great show of strength and all of that. And here they come. The Roman army comes to maintain this, this, this season in which Jerusalem swells from a population of about two, or about 50,000 people to well over 200,000 people. The procession of the Roman army would have been an imposing sight. There are legionnaires, um, on horseback, big, great stallions coming. The Roman standards and banners and flags all flying as they come into Jerusalem. The Roman eagle uh, prominently displayed. And there was the clank of armor and the beating of drums as they came into Jerusalem and they wanted to announce their sovereign power over Jerusalem. The announcement that they were making was that any resistance, any other king, would be hopeless. They were the established power of the day. The Roman army had come from places of power and very impressive structures. I saw some of the remains of those out on the Mediterranean Sea. But as Jesus approaches Jerusalem... He doesn't come with any of that. He comes walking <laughs> with the crowds. He sends people to a village to get a colt or a donkey. The people who followed Jesus were not from powerful population centers or from big cities, but from very humble agricultural 
villages. The largest one that Jesus had been in outside of Jerusalem was Capernaum, and that was a town of about 5,000 people or less. And so Jesus had spent his whole entire ministry in small places, in rural places. Can you imagine if Jesus had gone to a big urban center like Jerusalem and seen a colt and said, well, the Lord needs this, we're taking it. (laughs) Who knows, they might have been arrested for that. Um, But not in the village, not in the common places where the common people that had seen and loved Jesus and knew that Jesus loved them. But in contrast to that, you have Rome coming in on the other side of town, and they come in on these mighty horses. Jesus comes in on a donkey. He comes in not with a sword in a hand, but rather peace. The sword comes in the second coming, but Jesus comes in peace, and he rides in on a donkey that has never been ridden before. Why is that so important? You think about a donkey that has never been ridden, And then you're going to put the Messiah on him, first ride, coming into Jerusalem to present himself as a king. Any donkey that had never been ridden would kick and run and buck and everything else. But Jesus just gets on him and rides him. And there's no commotion, nothing else. I don't know exactly what you do with that. I I just think it probably says a lot about the gentleness and the power mixed in Jesus. And sometimes we look at ourselves and we think, well, man, I'm just, God can't get in control of this in my life or God can't get in control of that in my life. But Jesus got on a, unbroken donkey and the donkey just walked into Jerusalem. There's great power in Jesus. There is gentleness and power combined to do incredible things in our life. The crowds, they throw their cloaks on the donkey that Jesus would sit on their coats, their shirts. They throw them down on the ground. That was common in that day for somebody in authority or somebody royal to come by that you would do that in their day. They would cut these leafy branches off the trees out in the fields and wave them and throw them out on the path. This was not a small crowd. It was a multitude of people. Remember, I said the town swelled from 50,000 to 200,000 people for the Passover. And this was probably one of the larger Passovers that had ever happened because there were a certain number of people that wanted to come, especially this year, to see Jesus, to see if they might be able to see him. After all the things they had heard, he had been doing. And so there was this great crowd And Jesus, just a few days prior to this, had raised Lazarus from the dead. And this was a sign that they recognized when they laid down their cloaks and they laid down their palm branches. It was a sign that the people were saying, this is time to make him king. 
and Rome was ready. <laughs> Quite the contrast between the humble donkey riding power of Jesus and the oppressive power of Rome coming the other direction. The interesting thing is that Rome could demand of anyone, anywhere they went, that they would take off their coat, their shirt, that they would take, cut down branches and lay them down. They could just force that. They could demand it. And people just knew they had to do it so they could come in. Jesus didn't have to demand anything. He didn't even have to ask for it. They just started doing it to honor him as the king that they wanted that day. Their praise, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It was significant because they understood that Jesus was from that royal line of Judah, from the royal line of King David. And however wrong they might have been about what that meant and what kind of king Jesus would be, they understood that, that he was a king. They probably wanted to return to the golden age of David. They probably wanted all the military power, the expansion of territories that David had, and all of that. They probably anticipated Jesus leading, um, being led to the throne instead of being led to a cross when they got down inside Jerusalem. Hosanna means save us. They wanted to be saved. They wanted to be saved from Rome. <laughs> Jesus intended to save them, not from Rome, but from something much more dangerous, sin. And I want to pause and just talk to you just a little bit about that today. Because that is so true of me. And I suspect it is so true of you. That you want Jesus to save you from all kinds of circumstances. And as you head into this holy week, you want Jesus to save you from some circumstances you're facing now. And what Jesus came to save you from is none of that stuff. He came to save you from your sin. Jesus can save you from your circumstances. And quite often he saves us from circumstances and we don't even know about it. <laughs> but that's not why he came. That's not why he left heaven. That's not why he died on the cross. He died to save us from our sin. And I know in our evangelical traditions, sometimes we give a lot less attention to this than perhaps we should. I would beg you this week, even though we don't have a lot of uh, Lenten services and all of that kind of stuff, I would beg you to stop this week and ask Jesus, what sin do you want to save me from in my life? What do you want to change in me? Because when I pray 
And I suspect when you pray, we pray that God will save us from all kinds of things. And I don't know how often I actually get around to praying that God will save me from my sin. And we are not so holy that we don't have sin. Your pastor is not so holy that we do. I, I don't have sin. Jesus did not come primarily to save me from circumstances. He came to save me from the sin that will absolutely destroy and wreck my life. He came to save you from the sin that will destroy and, and just wreck your life. That's why he came. Not to save us from our circumstances and from all the things in life that we're not just real happy about. He came to save us from our sin. With all the hoopla, it is remarkable to watch the response of Jesus. <laughs> As, you know, he's been hailed king. People waving these branches and they're throwing cloaks down before him. And he's just riding this, this new cold donkey into town. And what does he do? He, he, he goes down that hill all the way down in the valley and back up to the temple. And when he, when he gets there, the scripture says he just looked at everything. The Greek word is ponte. It just means all. He just looked around at the temple. And it says he left. <laughs> he stopped, he paused, he looked at the temple. I wonder what all means. He gets down there, he just looks at the temple. Does it imply that he saw the corruption at the temple and all the, you know, the money changers and all of that? Because just in the next passage in Mark, that's exactly what Jesus deals with. He comes back the next day and he casts out the money changers. When he looks around at the temple, he came to the holy, the holiest place in Israel. And when he looked around, did he just see the corruption of what was there? Um, did he, when he looked around, did he see the stones that he had told his disciples that they would all be broken down and fall apart. And there would be nothing left of them um, as he prophesied about 70 AD when Jerusalem was destroyed and the temple was destroyed. I don't know what all he saw, but all it says is Jesus came down and he looked at the temple, looked at everything, and then he left. There are also some contrasting responses to Jesus. We are here celebrating Palm Sunday. Next Sunday we celebrate um, Easter and the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. But in between here is Monday, Thursday and Good Friday and the crowds yelling, crucify him, crucify him. Why? Where is this contrast between people waving branches and five days later, they're yelling, crucify him, crucify him. Well, first, I do want to say that they were essentially different crowds. Yes, 
There were probably some of the crowds that came in to, with Jesus into Jerusalem uh, that were waving palm branches that joined the chorus that's, that yelled out, crucify him, crucify him. And yes, we are kind of a fickle bunch. <laughs> and sometimes we can completely change our mind within five days. But I also think that there was a vast difference between the bulk of the people who came in with Jesus on the east who had lived with Jesus and seen him and had followed Jesus um, than those who were at Bethphage and in Jerusalem and in the city who were all this religious elite who didn't want anything to do with someone else who would come in and usurp their authority and draw the crowds away and, and you know the chief priests and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all of them who were so happy to see Jesus crucified. But second, these people were people who had been blessed by Jesus. He was the one who had fed the 4,000 and the 5,000. He was the one who taught them with authority. He was the one who was there um, teaching in parables that they could understand. He was the one who healed their sick and cast out their demons. And he exercised grace when they expected law. And he loved them. But now when, when, when they really, really wanted Jesus to do this one thing and become their king, he does not do what they want him to do. He does not get on a stallion. He does not wield a sword. He does not become their earthly king. He does not destroy this massive force from Rome. In fact, Jesus submitted himself to the worst of Roman deaths, the crucifixion. <laughs> and instead of a throne, Jesus ends the week on a cross. The third reason why I think people went from waving palm branches to yelling, crucify him, crucify him, was that Jesus loved everybody. He loved all people. And that was not cool with the religious people. <laughs> Even the disciples questioned some of the people and some of the children that Jesus ministered to and talked to. You remember one day Jesus was out there and children were coming to him and they said, get these children away from you. you got more important things to do. <laughs> um, they didn't even really understand that about Jesus. And, and there were times, you know, when Jesus was off with the Samaritan woman, you know, the disciples came and they couldn't figure out what was he doing there? Why was he talking to this woman? And there, and there were just times when even the disciples didn't get him. But if they did get him, certainly the Pharisees didn't get him. And they criticized him very early on within a few weeks of his, the start of his ministry for being a, a friend of tax collectors and Roman collaborators and sinners. And I just want to say that it probably would be a good thing if more people criticized me and criticized us because we love people. <laughs> um because we probably would be more like Jesus in that regard. As I close this morning, I want to just throw out some questions for you. I want to ask, who is your king? In Jerusalem that day, there were two kings coming from opposite directions to Jerusalem. 
One was the established authority and power, and the other one was a humble Jesus riding in on a donkey. And it's interesting that even though they hated Rome, the people of Jerusalem chose that king over Jesus. I want to know, would you voluntarily lay down your cloaks for Jesus? Or would you be forced to by someone else? There's coming a day when every knee shall bow and every tongue confess. You want to wait for that day or do you want to go ahead and do it today? Confess that Jesus is Lord and Savior Would you praise Jesus, Hosanna? Or would you yell crucify him when you don't get your way? Would you let Jesus deliver you from your sins instead of your circumstances? Again, I just urge you this week to say, God, what sin do you want to take care of in my life this week? That's why he died. Would you let Jesus disappoint you? Will he still be your king when he doesn't do what you want him to do? And would you love as Jesus loved?